Please stand now for the reading of God's word from Matthew 27. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. time I see one of those movies or hear one of those stories about somebody who sacrifices themselves or is willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of someone else, I always have this same thought, which generally goes like, I hope I never have to do that. I hope if I'm ever called on to do that, I hope that I actually am able to do that. I don't really want to, but if I were ever called to, I hope I'd have, you know, the strength of character to follow through on that kind of calling. I don't know if you feel the same way, or if you experience the same thing when you're hearing these stories. Maybe it's those, you know, those war movies that we watch, and you always see a soldier sacrificing himself uh, for his friends, for his fellow soldiers. Most of us will never face something like that. Uh, or, or maybe it's from the, the great stories of our time, or at least what you know, a child of the 90s like me thinks is the great stories of our time. Obi-Wan lowering his lightsaber. Uh, Harry walking out to confront Voldemort. Frodo volunteering to carry the ring. 
Or if you're younger, Tony Stark wielding the Infinity Gauntlet. Okay, no one. <laughs> but the real stories, the best stories are the ones that are more mundane, that are more real. You see it in the, the parents who are working tirelessly to care for a child with medical issues. Or you watch as a husband sacrifices his career so that his wife can flourish in hers. Uh, you see it in friends who rush to one another's side when tragedy strikes. And, and you think, maybe along with me, I'm ever, if I'm ever called to do that, I hope I can rise to the occasion uh, like they do. You know, the one thing that's consistent across all of those stories we hear, besides hopefully our response of, you know, wanting to be able to respond in that way, the one thing that's consistent across all of those stories is that none of them come with a moral at the end. In other words, none of them conclude with the application, how to be brave like Harry. At the end of the story, here's three things you should learn from how Harry sacrificed himself or got a burden, lessons from Frodo. No, because in stories of self-sacrifice, it's actually the story itself that's the point. The point isn't to draw some sort of applicational structure out of them. The point is to see the story, to watch the story, to imagine yourself in that story, to watch the courage of the ones who are willing, because of the depth of their love, the ones who are willing to sacrifice themselves on behalf of another. We watch that courage, we watch that love, and then we ourselves are transformed at a much deeper level than simply, here's three things I can do by Friday to have the courage of Tony Stark. The stories of self-sacrifice work on our hearts to transform us so that our, our actions follow. And that's the point of the passage that we're contemplating this morning that you just heard read. In these few weeks leading up to Easter we're walking in the way of the cross along with Jesus, walking with Jesus in the last few hours of his life. And we're doing our best to kind of walk through these passages and take them slowly because we want to spend as much time as we can contemplating and meditating on Jesus' suffering, the way that he experienced these last 24 hours before his crucifixion, not because we're morbidly curious or we just want to, you know, revel in the details of, a, of it. This, we're not rubbernecking <laughs> like we're driving past an accident on the highway. But we are people who are called to walk in the way of the cross, people who are called to live as Jesus did, who are called to offer life to others through our own sacrificial love. And so we watch Jesus walk this path so that we can learn to walk it ourselves, so that we can become the kind of people who can sacrifice ourselves if, when, we're called to do so. So in telling this story and in our time rolling around in this story, Matthew is he's trying to hit us emotionally, affectively, to, to transform us by drawing us to love the one who gave himself out of love for us. So we're going to spend the next 20 minutes or so together just hearing the story from Matthew 27. And we pick up in the first few verses. If you're using the Bible underneath the seat in front of you, I'm on page 990 
Uh, go ahead and turn there. The first two verses, and then we're going to skip a few before going on to verse 11. The first two verses really bring us up to speed in what's happened so far. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. See, we're at this point in the story where Peter has realized the depth of his betrayal of Jesus and has wandered off into the night to weep alone. Now it's morning, 6 6 a.m., maybe even a little bit earlier, and the chief priests and the elders who have been pulling the strings all night are circled up. They're getting their game plan together before they take Jesus to the governor, Pilate, for sentencing. They need to coordinate here because if they're going to get the death sentence on Jesus, they need Pilate's cooperation. The Roman rulers are very strict about the death penalty. They are the only ones who are legally allowed to execute a prisoner. Obviously, they don't want the Jewish leaders using the death penalty to uh, execute Roman sympathizers. And so they are the only ones who can put someone to death. But the problem that the uh, chief priests and the elders have is that Jesus isn't really any legal threat to Rome. They've charged him with blasphemy, and blasphemy as a charge carries no weight with Rome. What do they care? (laughs) And Pilate, for his, as far as he's concerned, Pilate doesn't have a reputation for being very cooperative, more like belligerent, or worse. Uh, History tells us that Pilate hated his Jewish subjects, and he didn't try in the least to understand them and their religion or their way of life. Uh, once he even stole money from the temple treasury in order to build an aqueduct that you know, would bring glory to him, and a crowd protested, so he slaughtered them all and then took their blood and mingled it with the blood of the sacrifices in the temple, profaning it. So it's not likely that Pilate is going to simply do the Jewish rulers a, a favor and take care of someone they've gotten sideways with. In fact, throughout the whole narrative to come, we don't so much get the sense that Pilate is for Jesus as he is against the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers. He's not really on Jesus' side. He's just against the ones who want Jesus put to death. So in verse 1, the Jewish rulers make their plans, and in verse 2, they bind Jesus and take him to stand before Pilate. That's where we jump ahead to verse 11. And read, now Jesus stood before the governor, that's Pilate, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Which gives us a clue as to how the Jewish rulers have made their case against Jesus. They've put it in terms that Pilate would find most appalling, emphasizing that anyone who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah was also claiming to be the Jewish king. And for this nation in subjugation, anyone who claims to be a king is setting themselves up against Caesar and any of his representatives. They go to Pilate and say, you know, he says he's our Messiah. That's our word for the anointed one, the one who is the ruler, the king. He thinks he's the king, which means he thinks you're not. And that's treason. That's sedition. That's the one thing Pilate can't tolerate, and that's the one charge that is answerable with a death penalty. So Pilate puts the question to Jesus in its bluntest and most anti-Roman form, are you the king of the Jews? 
Do you claim that this is true of yourself? Because if you are, you know what we do to so-called kings. But Jesus, hearing the charge, replies with, well, you have said so. Or, well, so you say. Uh, Which means he's uh, essentially agreeing, but saying it kind of like, uh, yeah, but when I say it, I don't mean it in the way you mean it when you say it. Yeah, yes, but... Now, in the way Matthew tells the story, then the following verses tell us that the Jewish leaders continue to pile accusations on him. Uh, This is the way a a Roman uh, jury normally go, a Roman trial would normally go with accusation, defense, accusation, defense, accusation, defense. But Jesus refuses to respond. He refuses to come to his own defense, even after Pilate nudges him and says, do you not hear the charges that they're laying against you? See, this is a judicial uh, embarrassment for Pilate. Uh, Rome doesn't particularly like sentencing defendants who put up no defense. It's, it's not a fair trial. Uh, there's even provision in the law to ensure that cases are well argued. Defendants are given at minimum three opportunities to respond to their charges before their silence is taken as an admission of guilt. So Pilate is trying to get Jesus to defend himself, and Jesus remains silent, which results there in, in verse 14, but he, Jesus, gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor, Pilate, was, was greatly amazed. Now, we're not quite sure how to read greatly amazed or, or how to understand it. On, on the one hand, it could be that Pilate is, is very impressed by Jesus' strength of character under pressure. Or he's greatly amazed, it's just incredulity at Jesus' stupidity for not defending himself, when obviously the charges against him don't rise to the level of capital punishment. We're not exactly sure which way to read what Pilate says, because the words translated greatly amazed can go either way. Usually context clues, uh, clues us in. Just a a few minutes ago, as I was uh, sitting up here in the front row, some of the kindly gentlemen up front said, I am amazed at your outfit. And I didn't know if that meant, I'm amazed that you did that yourself. (laughs) Or I'm amazed at how good you look. And to be clear, my wife chose everything but the socks. See, the context tells you, how are we supposed to read this? And for my money, Pilate thinks Jesus is being incredibly stupid. This is an easily defensible charge, and he's saying nothing. At worst, Jesus is a disturber of the peace. He deserves a flogging, a scourging. But nothing more than that. If Jesus would just cop to the claim that he's riling people up, Pilate could beat him and let him go. But Jesus won't defend himself, and so Pilate has no choice. No choice but to side with Jesus' accusers, which really annoys him. Uh, Pilate knows the Jewish leaders have no special loyalty for Rome. They don't care at all about Rome's opinion of someone claiming to be the rightful Jewish king. If they're accusing Jesus of being a traitor, that's just a cover for something else. (laughs) They're trying to use Pilate to get rid of Jesus, and he has to go along with it. Unless... And here's where the narrative kind of shifts gears as the author, Matthew, sets us up for what Pilate thinks is going to be a brilliant 
political move. Look at, at verse 15. Now, uh, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And Pilate is thinking, well, this is how I can stick it to the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish rulers. I can appeal to the crowd. They love Jesus. Remember how they greeted him just a few days ago on Monday. They love Jesus, and they'd be happy for me to release him if I just appeal to the crowd. But Pilate has miscalculated. There's already a crowd assembled and they're there for a very different reason. Remember, this is still fairly early in the morning. It's getting on towards about 7 o'clock now, maybe just a little bit later. And this is a crowd that has assembled proactively because they know that Pilate is going to release a political prisoner during the feast. That's today. Pilate's going to release someone, and this crowd is already there to get their guy out a notorious prisoner, an insurrectionist leader named Barabbas. And the Jewish people know the quickest way to get something done is to be as large and as noisy of a crowd as possible. We see this all throughout uh, history, uh, the, the history of the time. They're there to get their guy out, a notorious prisoner. That word notorious is another one of those words that's like, is that positive or is that negative? Well, it depends on who you ask. Uh, to, to the Roman authorities, he's notorious in a, a negative sense. Uh, but to the crowd, Barabbas is more famous than infamous. The, imagine him with the popularity of a Robin Hood-type folk hero. See, they are there already, ready and waiting for Pilate to ask, who do you want me to release so that they can respond with shouts of Barabbas? Give us back Barabbas, he's their hero. He's the one who's been trying to get a revolution off the ground. He's the one who's actually willing to shed blood to free them, you see. But Pilate's brilliant political move here is to offer Jesus in, in place of Barabbas. Jesus, the one who is popularly known as the Messiah, set him up against Barabbas, the one popularly known as the insurrectionist. As far as Pilate is concerned, one of these guys is guilty of disturbing the peace, that's Jesus, and the other is guilty of sedition and treason and murder, which is Barabbas. And between these two men, it really should be no contest at all. But he misjudges the crowd. Not only would a nationalistic crowd already assembled to advocate for the release of their guy not be likely to take the suggestion of the Roman governor, whom they hate, but also, even though Jesus still enjoys a little bit of popular support, it doesn't take much convincing by the chief priests and the rulers, the elders, to keep the crowd's focus on Barabbas. All the rulers have to do is whisper among the crowd, hey, we tried Jesus yesterday, found him guilty of blasphemy. Do you want to release the guy who offended God? Wouldn't you rather cheer for the release of the man who's trying to get these Roman boots off of our necks? It's a clear choice. The, the rulers aren't they're not persuading the crowd against their will. They're reinforcing the very reason for which this crowd is assembled. Give us Barabbas. Now, sensing that the, the crowd is not on his side, 
Pilate redoubles his effort. Okay, let me make this clear for you. Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And the crowd, even louder, shouts back, Barabbas. And why wouldn't they? As far as they know, their choice is between a convicted blasphemer, a man whose words would turn God against the cause of the Jewish nation, or they can choose Barabbas, the man whose zealous actions in defense of the Jewish nation would maybe turn God towards them and bring them the deliverance they're looking for. And Pilate, by this point, I think sensing that his things are slipping through his fingers, shouts back at the crowd, well, then what do you want me to do with the Jesus you call Messiah? And the crowd shouts back, crucify him. You've already got three crosses up on that hill, and the one in the middle was meant for Barabbas. Give us Barabbas and put Jesus on that one. Crucify him. Which is totally unexpected from a Jewish crowd. The Jewish people abhorred crucifixion. They saw it not just as a Roman punishment, but as a tool of oppression, a symbol and a sign of their subjugation. Every cross along the road was yet was an, another symbol of Rome's dominance over them. It was evidence that Rome ruled and they did not rule themselves. Crucify him. And Pilate responds, but what evil has he done? And they don't listen. They shout all the more, crucify him. Crucify him. To call for one of their own. To hang on a symbol of subjugation. It shows just how deeply and seriously they take this charge of blasphemy that has been whispered among them. However popular Jesus may have been a few days ago, now he must die. And Pilate at this point is cornered. He's been trying everything he can to get Jesus released, and his brilliant plan that would both release Jesus and annoy the Sanhedrin is, is crumbling, and the crowd is becoming a mob, and the mob is starting to riot. So verse 24 tells us, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now, did Pilate think that by symbolically washing his hands, he was actually removing any guilt from himself? No, I don't, I don't think so. For one thing, the custom of, of hand-washing is to, you know, to declare your innocence is not a Roman custom, it's a Jewish one. For Pilate to use this symbol implies he was using it facetiously or to make a point or to, to taunt the crowd. Imagine it like this, Pilate is shouting back and forth with the crowd and with their leaders as he is up front on a raised platform out in this open area before the palace and the leaders are right in front of him and they're having this shouting match dialogue over what are we going to do with Jesus and finally in exasperation, Pilate grabs a cup with some water on it, pours it over his hands and says, fine, I'm done with this. Look, I'm washing my hands of this whole thing, just like you do. This isn't my problem. This is yours. I want nothing to do with it. And once again, the crowd, not just the rulers, but the whole crowd, the people shout back, fine, his blood is on us and on our children. Now, that's a, a Jewish idiom, a, a figure of speech for saying, 
This one's on us. We'll take responsibility for it. Because as far as they know, under Jewish law, Jesus has been convicted of blasphemy, and that's a charge that's punishable by death, but they don't have the power to execute. So as long as Pilate will carry it out for them, they'll take responsibility for it, whatever whatever consequences come. So, verse 26, then Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged or flogged Jesus delivered him to be crucified. See, in the, in the Roman system of justice, a person could be scourged or, or flogged uh, for a minor crime, like disturbing the peace. That was the appropriate punishment. Now, scourging was so severe that sometimes it could result in death simply from uh, loss of blood. Uh, the Jewish law tried to limit the extent to which scourging could be used to punish someone by saying 40 lashings minus one. Uh, the Roman law had no limits. The, the beating was only limited by how long the soldiers could stay interested in what they were doing, how long their strength lasted. So sometimes this severe punishment, uh, which was uh, accomplished by beating the condemned with a whip that was made of braided leather with bits of metal or bone plated into it. Sometimes this, this punishment was, was used before a crucifixion in order to weaken the person so that the crucifixion wouldn't take as long. Uh, you don't want to send somebody strong to a cross. They might last past the point where you want to sit there and watch them. In this case... Matthew actually skips over what other gospel writers include. Pilate uses this beating as one more attempt to try to get Jesus released, at least from the death penalty. Uh, He beats him and then appeals to the religious leaders, look, he's as close to death as you can get without actually killing him. Isn't that enough? And they say again, crucify him. And so Pilate delivers Jesus over to be crucified. And the story, the hope is over. I don't know if you noticed, it took me quite a few readings before I noticed in these verses that we've looked at this morning that in this whole story, Jesus is barely present. I mean, he's there, obviously. He's in the story, of course, all the way through, but he seems to have no agency, no control, nothing to say, no defense to make, except for one sentence, four words. That's what you say. You have said so. So you say. Jesus isn't doing anything. Everything seems to be happening to him, which, of course, is Matthew's point. Matthew is consciously telling the story of Jesus' last few hours with echoes of the Old Testament prophecies in the background, words like Isaiah's words about the servant who would suffer on behalf of of the nation. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shearies, he did not even open his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial. But who even cared? Matthew keeps the focus squarely on Jesus' silence in the face of everyone else's shouting. And in this narrative, we see Jesus cast in stark relief compared to everyone else 
around him. We have religious leaders who can't see the work of God right in front of their eyes. As John puts it in his gospel, they would rather have one person die for the people than the whole nation suffer. We have a a political leader, Pilate, who cares more about keeping his job than about delivering on justice. He'll sacrifice just about anyone if that's what it takes for him to maintain his position. So he ends up letting a guilty man go free so that an innocent man can hang on a cross in his place. We have a crowd that that came to see their hero, uh, the guerrilla insurrectionist Barabbas, released. They find themselves in an irony of ironies, forced to choose between Barabbas, whose full name is Yeshua bar Abbas, the son of the father, the one who saves. They have to choose between Barabbas and Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. And they trust their leaders when their rulers tell them, better to rescue the father's son who saves the one who's willing to shed Roman blood to win their political freedom, even if it means rejecting the real father's son, the one who truly saves, the one who's willing to shed his own blood to win their ultimate freedom. And throughout it all, we have Jesus, who, like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, is silent throughout. We've said in this uh, sermon series, the way of the cross, that our calling is to walk in the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. But I think frequently, too frequently, we will find ourselves walking in the way of the crowd, trading the call of the Messiah for political expediency, finding ourselves exchanging the call of the cross for a quick relief from discomfort, trading the eternal for the temporary. And like the crowd, we too need grace. Grace for the bystanders. They didn't, this is a crowd that did not mean to do evil. They only wanted their freedom. But in chasing freedom, they guaranteed their own slavery. And everyone in this story is shouting. They have something to say that they want others to hear. They need to be heard and understood. Everyone is shouting except Jesus, who, like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, doesn't even open his mouth. So what about, um, what about us? What about we who are called to walk in the way of the cross? We who are called to a cross-shaped life, called to live as, as Jesus did. We who are called to offer life to those around us through the self-sacrificial offering of our own lives. What do we do when we find ourselves unwilling to give, unwilling to sacrifice, unwilling to, to live as Jesus did when the sacrifice we're called to make is too great for us, or the love we have for others is too weak. What do we do when we see one who is willing to give of himself and we, our hearts say, I hope I'm never called on to do that, but if I am, 
may I be found worthy. What do we do? We watch the courage of the one who, because of the depth of his love, sacrificed himself on our behalf. The innocent condemned so that the guilty can go free. And it's in that love that we are transformed. Would you pray with me? Father, too often we are far from silent. We resist the call that you place on us, the call to walk in the way of the cross. We long for the way of resurrection. And we reject the way of suffering. But you have called us to walk both in the the cruciform way, the cross-shaped way, and in the resurrected way. Give us the wisdom to know when you are calling us to victory or to defeat. When you are calling us to sacrifice or to celebration. So that we, like your son, who went not up to joy before he endured pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified, may we Mercifully, Father, grant that we may walk in the way of the cross and find it none other than the way of life and peace. This we pray in the name of the one who walked the way of the cross and who walks it with us still. Amen.